Welcome to our video class. I have my Bible open to Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. The Sermon on the Mount. Our study continues. Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The Sermon on the Mount begins with two sections. Eight Beatitudes answer the question, what is the Christian's essence? Followed by two metaphors that address the question, what is the Christian's influence? What is the Christian's essence? And then after that, what is the Christian's influence? Now, the first leads to the second. First, if the Beatitudes describe our essence, then the influence is described in the images of salt and light. So in this class, as we drop into the part about influence, I want to stress you cannot have this influence or this effect unless your essence as a person is as described by Christ in the Beatitudes. Of course, he died so that we could be forgiven and have these kingdom qualities. That said, we will address the Christian's influence as expressed by Christ in these words we've read, Matthew 5, 13 through 16. Every word Christ spoke takes us closer to understanding the kind of life that is good, spiritually healthy, fulfilling, pleasing to God, that has good impact on others, and has a great reward in heaven. Knowing what God expects of us, grasping our real spiritual needs, appreciating the hope of the gospel, and learning how we can effectively serve and influence others. All of that is here in Matthew chapter 5. All of this we have access to when we read and study what Christ said, what he said about himself, and what he said through his chosen ambassadors about how his disciples ought to live. Unmistakably, this teaching I've read from Matthew 5, 13 to 16, is about influence. I've often said the Bible teaches us how to serve God and how to serve others, and the latter grows out of the former. As we get our hearts and lives properly aligned with God through Jesus Christ, we are equipped to serve others in the highest possible way. I know each of us have these two goals. We want to serve God 
and we want to serve others in the best kind of way. Part of our service to God and others is this matter of influence. Jesus is addressing that in this passage, and we need to listen to him, measure our present level of influence, and determine that we will continue to exert the good influence we are able to have on others because we are disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, before I get into the specific images of this passage, I want to say everybody has influence. I know it sounds like I'm being very technical here, but I want to make a point. It is really not accurate for us to say that somebody has lost their influence. While it may be true someone who had good influence took a wrong turn and now has bad influence, influence was not lost, just changed. There is, radiating from every person, some kind of influence. It is either good or it is bad. Our calling as Christians is to radiate to others the highest influence, so that when people get to know us, they get to know righteousness and integrity and moral courage, love, peace, wisdom, and everything else that is godly. When your friends, neighbors, and co-workers learn you are a Christian, it shouldn't come as a surprise. It should be true that God uses us to draw people to himself and change lives. Those concepts of good influence are all wrapped up in two symbols in this passage, salt and light. We should be prepared every day to pour on the salt and turn on the light. Let's begin with salt. You are the salt of the earth. In our culture, we use salt primarily for one reason, flavor. It is common at almost every table and in every kitchen, commercial or domestic. One of the most frequent requests we hear during a meal is, would you pass the salt? Other ancient uses of salt or even other modern uses of salt do not receive much attention with most of us. Flavor or taste is what we associate with salt. Let me bring this up that we may not have given much thought to. Salt is an absolute necessity for life. Sodium is involved in muscle contraction, including heartbeats, in our nerve impulses, in the digestive system of the body, involved in bodybuilding protein. Salt regulates the exchange of water between our cells and their surrounding fluid, which carries food in and waste out. Without salt, the body goes into convulsions, paralysis, then death. Put blood cells in a salt-free fluid and they explode. Now, I'm not recommending that you put more salt on your food. Might be a good idea to cut back on some of that, but salt as a body chemical is essential. 
And I was not aware until I did the research a few years ago that in ancient cultures, where salt was scarce, it was traded ounce for ounce with gold. It was not uncommon in the early days of the Roman Empire for salt to have more value than gold. It was often observed that there is not a single man who does not need salt. It was in the Roman Empire that an expression came into their language about a man working hard, referred to as men worth their salt. The workers who were worth their salt were the ones who earned their salary. During the grim winter of Napoleon's retreat from Moscow, salt starvation decimated his troops, lowering resistance to disease. Epidemics spread. Wounds that became otherwise, uh, wounds that might otherwise have healed quickly became fatal. I could offer many other examples, but you see the point already. Jesus is using salt as the symbol, selected something of high value. He selected something of high value. We need to think of this indispensable commodity. It is much more than just flavor for your fries. In Palestine, in the time of Christ, salt was an important ingredient in everyday life, but in several ways. It acted as a powerful preservative, preventing infection and corruption. It stimulated taste as well as adding flavor. Now, take all that information and move into the realm of influence. The influence of those who are poor in spirit, meek, and who hunger and thirst after righteousness. God's people should be living in such a manner with these beatitudes descriptive of their inner self that we prevent corruption. When people are around us and as they get to know us, our influence should discourage them from moral decay. Our effect on people should be to keep them from those things in the world that infect and destroy. Further, as people know us and spend time with us, it should create in them an interest or a thirst for God. Now, in all this, I need to say we cannot force people to change, but we can give them salt in hope they will want to drink of the fountain of life. We do that through the influence of our lives. Then we should live with people in such a manner that we add flavor we create goodwill, we share peace, we encourage people in weary times, and we help people who are pained to bear up under that pain. But if the salt loses its flavor, its saltiness, the power of godly influence is lost. If we make compromises and concessions to the world, if we suffer a gradual loss of zeal and energy, if our commitment to godliness gives way to carnality and worldly lust, our value for good in terms of our influence toward people around us disappears. 
I wanted to bring up one other thing regarding salt from Vance Havner in one of his books. I quote, We are the salt of the earth, mind you, not the sugar. Our ministry is to truly cleanse and not just to change the taste. I have heard and read many developments of the salt theme. The outline usually runs the same course. Salt seasons, purifies, preserves. But somebody ought to remind us that salt also irritates. Real living Christianity rubs this world the wrong way. The only salt that will not irritate is salt without savor. And our Lord said such salt is good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden underfoot of men. You are the light of the world. It may well be this is one of the greatest challenges Jesus ever gave to his people. In this, Jesus commands the Christian to be what he himself claimed to be. In John 9 and verse 5, Jesus said, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So he's demanding nothing less than that we should be like him, that the high standard of conduct and therefore influence that Jesus had should be channeled through us, if I may use such terminology. Now, when Jesus spoke these words, he was using an expression most Jews were very familiar with. It was common long before Jesus came for the Jews to speak, for example, of Jerusalem as a light to the Gentiles. If they were familiar with a famous or prominent rabbi, they might call him a lamp to Israel. Of one thing, the Jews were very sure. No man kindled his own light. Jerusalem was indeed a light to the Gentiles, but it was commonly said God lit Israel's lamp. They would speak of their light as a nation, as a reflection, not the source. Thus it is Jesus is not commanding us to produce or originate light. We can't say, let there be light, and there's light. He's commanding us to reflect his light and the light of the Father. The radiance which shines is through the Christian. It is from God. We are able to walk in the light and shine the light because God is the light and we're connected with him through Christ. When Jesus said that the Christian must be the light of the world, what do we need to get from that? A light if it is first and foremost something which is meant to be seen. Our lives lived under the authority of Christ meant to be seen. That doesn't mean we get up on stage, but it does mean we do not hide. If you're trying to be a secret Christian or an underground Christian, you're not fulfilling what the Lord teaches here. Let your light shine. Be visible to people. Second, I want to say a light is a guide on waterways, highways, along sidewalks, in air navigation, 
Lights mark the way. A Christian must live in such a way he makes the way clear to others. Our example, our demeanor, our stated convictions and associations and practices, all of that should mark the way for people who are lost. The world needs its guiding lights. There are people looking for help we can supply by reflecting the light of God. Number three, a light can often be a warning. A light is often the warning which tells us to halt when there is danger ahead. It is sometimes the Christian's duty to bring to his fellow man the necessary signal of danger. That is often difficult, and it is often hard to do in a way which will not do more harm than good. But right now in this passage, we're talking more about behavior than words, more about conduct than conversation. I'm saying our lives should display such uprightness. We become a living warning against corruption that others are able to see. Our lives should display such an interest in reverence for God and love for Christ we become walking warnings against rebellion against God and disrespect for Christ. So we must work and determine in heart to be the light which can be seen, the light which guides, the light which warns. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We must pour on the salt and turn on the light and do that better every day that people may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Next time, we will talk about Christ fulfilling the law.